0: Edge the sentient hedge, you bendy Evans. Welcome to the Blind Buy podcast. At the end of last week's podcast, which was about the history of bard shit, I mentioned that I'd have a surprise for you this week. But I did have a surprise for you. Killian Murphy was going to be my guest on the podcast this week. I was going to have Killian Murphy on the podcast to speak about his new film, Oppenheimer. We were all excited to do it, couldn't wait. It was going to be a big, exclusive, proper chat with Killian Murphy, who I've had on this podcast before. But the Screen Actors Guild have gone on strike for the first time in 50 years, I believe. So that means Killian Murphy is on strike as well. And Killian doesn't cross picket lines, obviously. And I don't cross picket lines. So unfortunately, Killian Murphy is not my guest on this week's podcast and I know each week I often start off the podcast with a poem from a Hollywood actor so it sounds a little bit boy who cried wolf but no actually it, like Killian Murphy was literally going to be on the podcast this week and we were going to chat about Oppenheimer and even if I asked Killian to submit a poem for the start of this podcast he couldn't do it he'd be breaking the terms of the strike all actors in the Screen Actors Guild have to down tools and that includes doing any promotional material except for Harvey Keitel, who was kind enough to break the picket line and submit this piece of prose for this week's podcast. I want to dress up as a slice of bread and hurl myself into the mouth of a swan. I want to dress up as a slice of bread and end the hunger of the world. I want to dress up as a slice of bread and call myself Jesus Christ. I want to dress up as a slice of bread so that your mother can soften me with milk. And sprinkle me with nutmeg and sweeten me with sugar and fatten me with butter and dash my brains out with a rolling pin and then put me in the oven. And then I want your mother to hand slices of me out as a morsel of solidarity at the picket lines to all my colleagues who were striking with the Screen Actors Guild. And they think they're eating bread and butter pudding but they're not, they're eating Harvey Keitel. ...and I laugh inside their jowls... ...while they kill me... ...with their American teeth... ...so thank you very much to Harvey Keitel... ...for crossing the picket line there... ...and submitting that... ...piece of prose... ...to this week's podcast... ...but seriously... ...yeah, killian Murphy was supposed to be my guest... ...on this week's podcast... ...he was on the podcast before... ...I'm not making it up... ...he's from Cork... ...Cillian Murphy was supposed to be on this week's podcast... And I'm hugely disappointed because I love Killian, and I was looking forward to having a chat. And what I was really... I'll tell you what I was really excited about. Last week's podcast was about the history of bard shit. And I went real in-depth about the history of bard shit as a source of nitrogen. And I demonstrated how bard shit led to the creation of explosives... Go back and listen to last week's podcast if you want to hear more detail on this. But a scarcity of bard shit in the 19th century led to scientists discovering how to extract nitrogen from the air. That led to industrial grade military explosives and bombs. Bombs started getting bigger and bigger. And then by World War II, they were like, These, I think we've made the biggest bomb that we can make. Until a physicist... Called Robert Oppenheimer stepped in and said, I can make a bigger bomb, a nuclear bomb. And Killian Murphy is playing Robert Oppenheimer in the film Oppenheimer. So I wanted my chat with Killian Murphy to be like a part two of my history of bard shit podcast. So this week I don't have a hot take prepared because the interview with Killian was cancelled at the last minute and I'd been budgeting my time to doing the final edits on my collection of short stories. I'm at the literal end process of my book now at the moment. I mean, the last final tooth comb before it goes off to be printed. And I'm so excited. I can't wait to show you the book. I'm really, really happy with it. And it's quite different to my first two collections of short stories. My last collection was 2019 and I used... I used the entirety of the pandemic to just read and read and read and then develop my writing style. But the end of a project, it's always sad, it reminds me of death. The most enjoyable part of a creative project is the bit in the middle, even the writer's block, even the days when I feel like giving up because I can't think of an idea and then finally the flow hits and I can write, but the joy joy of writing a book for me it's nice to finish it and to hand it over for people to read and to put it out into the world the fun part of writing a book is the writing it's the bit in the middle it's the process and the way i'm feeling right now i'm not sure will i take a break i don't know will i take a break once this book is published i might just go straight into writing the new one it's what feels right when you do any project for a long time and then you finish it whatever it is it could be a book or your leaving insert, or it could be a college degree or even a massive jigsaw puzzle that takes months to do or you could be saving up all your money because you're not happy in ireland and you want to emigrate you want to move to glasgow you want to move to brisbane and you convince yourself along the way i will be happy then once i get there everything's going to be okay and i'll be happy and then you arrive the initial buzz is over and you're like is this it kind of feel the same way i felt back in ireland it's just a bit sunnier when you actually finish it you get this sad feeling of is that it now is that it was that what it was all about and it's an unhealthy way to view anything it's this illusion of i'm working towards something and at the end will be happiness and that's not how life works You can never aim for happiness as a goal. But what you can have is meaning in the middle. It's like going to the gym. If you go to the gym and you have a specific goal of how you'd like to look. You'd like to add an inch onto your shoulders. Or you'd like to get to this weight. When you get there, there's a little sadness. A feeling of, is this it? And that's not it. The it was the journey in the middle the conflict the days where you didn't want to go to the gym or the days where you didn't think you'd reach your goal and the other days where you had an amazing workout and you felt great the end result should be a consequence of all that shit it should just be a thing that happens when you fully enjoy the process with meaning and purpose so that's why I kind of don't want to stop I want to finish editing this book send it off And while that's getting printed and doing all the stuff that's out of my hands, I just slowly go back into the process, the next book. So the journey hasn't ended. I just reach a crossroads and take a new turn. Oh, I wonder what it's going to be like down here. So for this week's podcast, because I didn't have time to prepare a hot take, I'm going to answer some of your questions. Because there's hundreds and I rarely get around to them all. So the first question I'm going to answer is a question from Ruth. And I'm going to answer this first. Because it echoes a point I made at the start of this podcast that I want to expand upon. So Ruth asks, Blind Boy, you mentioned on Instagram that a student in Trinity College had done a thesis about your podcast. Can you speak about that? Yes. Over the summer, a student in Trinity College, who's doing their master's in modern and contemporary literary studies, they did their master's thesis. The student's name was Ola al-Haj Hassan and her thesis was called The Voice in Authorship Speech and Writing in the Blind Boy Podcast and I'll just read a little bit from the conclusion of her thesis it says In this essay I have closely looked at or rather listened to the Blind Boy Podcast to argue for its place in the contemporary literary field using excerpts from several episodes I investigated how Blind Boy's monologues deconstruct the binary between speaking and writing I also demonstrated how his approach to podcasting as a literary medium invites a return to the sound of literature, recenters the voice in writing and deepens our understanding of authorship as a performance in which voice and authority are implied. Now I was thrilled and so unbelievably flattered that someone had dedicated their master's thesis to this podcast and what I was also really happy with is over the past five years of making this podcast, I've started referring to it as, as a novel, as a never-ending novel. Because I use literary means to write and deliver it. But I was glad to see someone casting a critical eye over podcasting in general. When you hear podcasts being spoken about, they just get lumped into this, this one category, podcasts. This person is a podcaster, they make a podcast. Which is like saying... Oh, they make books. But like, you'd immediately ask... Well, what type of book? What is the aim of the book? Does it have an intended audience? But with podcasts... Like the vast majority of podcasts... Tend to be interview podcasts. Two or three people sit down and talk... And they deliver it in a way that isn't really edited. And it's not planned out the way an interview is... It just unfolds like a conversation and the audience observes. And the way a podcast interview unfolds, it's quite different to a radio or TV interview. With a radio or TV interview, the interviewer has a set of questions that they read off a sheet of paper. They ask these questions to the person that's being interviewed. It's very unlike natural conversation. And you get a sense that the interviewer is really can't wait until the person that's being interviewed is, is finished answering that question so they can move on to the next one. Everything is kind of pushed towards sound bites and none of it feels natural. So TV and radio interviews do not feel natural. Now, when we didn't have any other choice, when it was the 90s, we'll say we didn't care because it was all we knew. And in 2023, Radio and television interviews, they feel uncomfortable and awkward because we're used to listening to podcasts where people can have full-on conversations and there's an intimacy there. So why do radio and television interviewers still do this? Well, because radio and television are... they're heritage art forms. They're art forms and mediums that still exist even though they're not really relevant. Think of it this way. Where do you think that comes from? You've got six questions on your sheet of paper. You're interviewing a celebrity and you're going to stick to these six questions, wait for their response and move on. Where does that come from? It comes from a time in 1930s, 40s, 60s, right up to the late 1980s. It comes from a time when things were being recorded on tape. So if you work for a radio station in the 1970s, and you're interviewing a celebrity, if the interview descends into conversation, rambling conversation, then that's an absolute nightmare for the person who has to edit that interview. Because what they're editing is a huge big reel of tape and to edit it, they literally have to get a razor blade and they have to cut up that tape and stick it together. So in the 1970s and the 1980s, for television and radio, to do an interview that turns into regular conversation could mean weeks of work it could mean weeks of literal cutting and splicing with razor blades glue and sellotape is that the case anymore absolutely fucking not not since digital became a thing in the 90s but yes tv and radio still follow a strict format that is rooted in a time when editing meant serious physical labor that took a long time They still do it because of tradition. Tradition, a lack of critical thinking, and a business model that kind of needs to stay the same way. Podcast interview is very different. Podcasters are the first interviewers where they're like, I'm going to chat to someone interesting and if this needs to be three hours long with no edits, I can fucking do that because this is digital. There's no radio slot. There's no time that this has to be the person who's listening to this, they can choose to listen to all three hours of the interview at once, or they can take it in bits at their own time throughout the week. So podcasting is a medium which is actually relevant to our lives and how we consume media. It's not a heritage art form, it's an emerging art form. And in the 20th century and beyond, technology really dictated the boundaries of what art could be. Let's take music for example. Why are songs about three and a half minutes long? Who decided that? Why are songs three and a half minutes long? Do you think a folk musician in 1850 was writing a song that's three and a half minutes long? No. If you go to Irish folk songs from the 1850s, you could have a song that's a half an hour long. Songs became three, four minutes long because that's how much song you could fit on a record. Then radio decided that's how long they want a pop song and it kind of just stayed that way until like the 1970s mainly prog rock bands which are progressive rock bands like Pink Floyd or Yes they said you know what people people aren't listening to Pink Floyd songs on the radio people now are buying stereo hi-fis at home they're consuming our art in a different way so why don't we write a song that's 30 minutes long, and just put it entirely on one side of an album. And that's what Pink Floyd did in the 70s. Like Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, which came out in 1975. Like that fucked everything up because Bohemian Rhapsody was six minutes long, and the radio were going, What are we going to do? This is a pop song. Not only is it a pop song, it's the catchiest song of the year. It's six minutes long. What are we going to do? Now the opposite is happening because we're in the streaming age. You'll see this in hip-hop songs in particular, rap music that's coming out right now. We no longer buy music. No one's going to buy an album. No one's going to give an artist 20 quid to buy their album anymore and listen to it for an entire year. We've gone to the streaming age where musicians don't make money from streams and we rent their music out. So now what's happening? A lot of new rap songs are maybe one minute and 20 seconds long why because they make money per play so if your song is one minute long i'll replay it more and the artist earns more money if you want to go pink floyd today and release a song that's a half an hour long and put that up on spotify fair play to you but you're making the same amount of money for per half an hour song as you would do if that song was one minute long So technology kind of dictates art painting is a heritage art form i adore painting i love it i'm not dissing painting but what i am saying is that there was once a time in history where paintings would have caused riots there was a time in history where people were starved of visual information they didn't have newspapers they didn't have magazines they didn't have television the visual imagery that people had or whatever an artist could paint. There was extreme cultural scarcity around visual imagery. So when a painting was produced that was exceptionally beautiful or exceptionally controversial, people had to physically go and see it. And that experience was emotionally and culturally overwhelming. It's that's not the case anymore. We live in a society where we're visually bombarded with all types of images all the time. So a painting in a gallery can still be moving and beautiful or jarring, but it's not deeply relevant to the lived experience of everyday people. But when photography was invented in the 1820s, it took almost a 100 years for photography to be considered art. Like here's a quote from an art journal called Brush and Pencil from 1901 about photography. The fear has sometimes been expressed that photography would in time entirely supersede the art of painting. Some people seem to think that when the process of taking photographs in colour has been perfected and made common enough, the painter will have nothing more to do. That's 1901. That person is speaking about photography the exact same way someone speaks about artificial intelligence art right now. Photography wasn't viewed as an art form in itself that could be relevant, but rather... This sterile, mechanical thing that simply replaced painters. The first ever art exhibition of photography was in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London in 1858. It took 38 years from the invention of photography for the v Museum to put on a photography exhibition, and even when they did, it was deeply controversial. This is not art, fuck off. In, in America, They didn't have an exhibition of photography as art until 1924 in the museum of fine arts boston that's 100 years after the invention of photography why does it take that long fear lack of critical thinking and the fear of something being replaced and the need to diminish this new art form that fear driving the emotion of fear which gets in the way of critical thinking in 2023 do we consider photography to be an art form absolutely photographers are considered some of the greatest artists of the 20th century but photography is now a heritage art form i mean the literal taking photographs on film developing them in a dark room printing them putting them on a wall in a gallery it's still done incredible work is still being made but that specific process which was once highly radical is now kind of not really relevant to the lives of everyday people. You have to go out of your way and go into the photography exhibition and see it there on the wall and appreciate it as a heritage art form. Stand-up comedy is a heritage art form. Am I shitting on stand-up comedy? Absolutely not. There's incredible stand-up comics but it's not full-on relevant to the everyday lives of people. In the 50s, let's say the Lenny Bruce era, People went to see stand-up comics because they were saying shit that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. It was really relevant to people's lives. Going to stand-up comedy was part of the the fabric of life of everyday people. Now, less so. It's a bit like going out of your way to see some paintings in a gallery. Or going out of your way to see a photography exhibition. TikTok comedy, different story. TikTok comedy still uses the mechanics of stand-up comedy still joke telling but it's on your phone it's in the algorithm it's of a certain length and the medium is highly relevant to the lives of people in 2023 and this is where we get to podcasts and books and literature books are kind of a heritage art form i'm not shitting on books i'm writing one at the moment i love reading books i adore it but i'm a booky person i go out of my way to read books because i love it and i enjoy it And I go out of my way to write books because I enjoy writing books. I enjoy writing words that are to be read on a page with your eyes. But if you're on a train or a bus, how many books have you seen in people's hands? Not as many as you saw 25 years ago. People are scrolling through their phones or listening to podcasts. Now, they might be reading books. They might be looking at a Kindle on their phone or they might have a Kindle. I mean, that in itself, like that book, Fifty Shades of Grey, which was huge around 2011, They say that Fifty Shades of Grey wouldn't have become so popular if it wasn't for the Kindle. Because Fifty Shades of Grey is a sex book. It's about sex. The whole book is about riding. A lot of people up to that point weren't comfortable on a bus holding a physical copy of a sex book. They wanted to read sex books on their way to work. But they're not holding it there having everyone... the, The shame was too great. And as soon as it was on a Kindle, you could read it all you want and no one knows what the fuck you're reading. So podcasts are the new medium that are relevant to the lives of everyday people in how they go about their lives. But we as a society, there's very few people critically reflecting on podcasts. Like I said, they're all lumped into one. People generally think of podcasts as just two people talking into a mic with no editing. Just to comment on the the complete lack of critical thinking around podcasting at the moment there's an Irish broadcaster and radio presenter Ryan Tuberty and he's involved in a big scandal at the moment with RT, I've spoken about it the past two podcasts and they don't know whether Ryan Tuberty is going to keep his job on the radio or not and I saw a journalist a fucking, a journalist tweet Ryan Tuberty is going to be reduced to podcasting it took all my power not to respond it was so terrifying to see a journalist Someone who's supposed to be thinking about this stuff. To have such a lack of understanding of the media that they're they're speaking about. They hadn't a fucking clue. Like to be reduced to podcasting. If you want to be reduced in 2023 you get reduced to radio. Radio is the heritage art form. Radio is still stuck in an era where they think you have to edit on tape. Radio is static. It's not moving. It can't go anywhere. People aren't listening to it. It's propped up artificially. Podcasting, on the other hand, is an emerging field with infinite possibilities for creativity. You can go wherever you want with podcasting if you have the curiosity and creativity. What podcasting doesn't have is prestige. And it doesn't have prestige because it's not a heritage art form. Heritage art forms have institutions around them and tradition and history, but they're rarely done. ...deeply relevant to the lived experience of everyday people. And in order for art to actually be vital... ...to do what art is supposed to do... ...it needs to be relevant to the lives of everyday people. So literature has been explored in audio formats for years. Like in the fucking 50s and 60s... ...they used to get people like Samuel Beckett... ...to write radio plays. And today we have audio books. So there are audio formats shit you listen to that is considered literature by the people and institutions who decide what literature is and generally for a piece of audio to be considered literature it needs to meet these criteria it needs to be written on a piece of paper with the human hand and then read out verbatim that's what a radio play is that's what an audiobook is these things are considered literature no one asks any questions about it not even literature just simply considered writing if it's written with the human hand and read off a piece of paper and delivered via audio then it fits that criteria that heritage criteria now why is this? why are radio plays written down and read out? why are audio books written down and read out? why is old school comedy sketches that used to be on the radio before television written down and read out? Does it have anything to do with art no fuck all it has to do with the limits of the technology at the time it has to do with tape why would samuel beckett in the 1950s write a radio play and then read it out because of the limitations of tape every fuck up every slip up every mistake you have to wipe it and you have to go back and you have to do it again in a take because the alternative meant literally getting razor blades and glue and sellotape splicing things together for days madness same with audiobooks write it down first on a piece of paper read it out what is considered literature in an audio format today is bound by technology that isn't fucking relevant anymore so the initial question was how did i feel that someone had done their master's thesis in the literary department up in trinity asking the question is my podcast literature I was fucking thrilled I was very very happy because that's the process whereby things get recognized as being art a scholar or a critic or whoever says oh there's an emerging new form of media here and it's quite different to what we've seen before I wonder is anyone trying to create art with this new medium and we're gonna have to look with a very cold and critical eye because usually The thing that is art that's happening right now, it doesn't look like art because it's not operating within a heritage art form. And my intent for this podcast has always been artistic. Now I'm not sucking my own flute there and saying, oh, this podcast is art as if that means it's somehow great or greater than anything else. That's not what I mean. What I mean is when I write this podcast, I'm not paying respects to a heritage art form. I'm actively using my curiosity and creativity to be playful with the possibilities of an emerging medium. And what that is, is that's artistic intent. The work asks questions of the medium itself and how it's being consumed and how it's relevant to people's lives. And I know how wanky that sounds. I know that sounds wanky and it sounds like a statement of intent that you'd see at a gallery. But I'm not bullshitting. This is what gives me genuine meaning in life. This is what makes... I get up in the morning i go to bed at night time and this is the bit in the middle that gives me purpose and meaning it makes me happy to be alive and it might succeed or it might fall on its arse for me i just want to be like i'm three years of age and i've just gotten my first pack of crayons and i'm finding out what they can do so when i say i consider this podcast to be a novel i mean it this is an auto fiction novel but blind boy a novel ...has a start, a beginning and an end. Says who? The heritage gatekeepers of what a book is? This physical object that exists in time and space... ...that has a certain amount of pages that you hold in your hands? Is that what a novel is? This novel is process-based... ...and uses the never-ending medium of podcasting... ...and it changes and evolves as it goes along. And then the other thing is... we're Blind by if this is a novel... Should you not, like, write it out first, and then read it? See, if I did that, that would... If I did that, there'd be no one listening to this. It wouldn't be relevant to people's lives. That feels unnatural. You want an example of this? Listen to shit American podcasts. Not not This American Life, which is amazing. Listen to the thousands of podcasts that try to copy This American Life. The presenters often write a script on a piece of paper but they read it out as if the words are just forming in their heads in that moment as genuine conversation. And it feels strange and unnatural, but we don't know why. That's why. Because they're bringing the irrelevant tools of a heritage art form into an emerging media. Each one of these podcasts is about maybe 20 to 25,000 words. Why would I write that out in prose on a page which is intended to be Read with the voice in your mind why the fuck would I do that the only reason I'd do that is if I was beholden to a heritage art form if I was existing pretending that I was recording into a a reel to reel and it would mean taking out razor blades to cut up all my dialogue the mad thing is I use technology to record this podcast that would not have been available to me 10 years ago it takes me about 3 or 4 days record we'll say one hour of audio a good hot take takes about three or four days of recording for one hour and i might work seven eight hours a day the past eight years we'll say recording software has gotten to the point that i can i can use recording software with the ease that i'd use a word processor so i write with my mouth for you to read with your ears i could start a sentence now and finish the sentence now and 24 hours will have passed in between and you'd be none the wiser I can go into a full a full block of audio that I've recorded and go right into one word re-record that move it around I use recording software like a word processor and you couldn't do that 10 years ago not with a file that's like an hour long my computer would have crashed I would have had to have owned a computer that would have been miles out of my budget but now for the first time everyone has access to technology where you can record your voice and cut it and edit it and move things around with the exact same ease that you can edit a word document so that's writing could you do that in the 1950s 60s 70s 80s no fucking way it meant razor blades and glue so what i tried to do with this podcast is like i said auto fiction I use the mechanics of storytelling to take you on a journey each week. And something I'm really curious about, that I enjoy doing, is blurring boundaries between reality and fiction. My favourite writer of all time is Flann O'Brien. who's an Irish writer who's considered the inventor of postmodernism in literature. With a book that he wrote called At Swim Two Birds, which he wrote in the 1930s. In the least amount of words possible, what is postmodernism? It's a piece of art that is aware that it is a piece of art and knows that someone is looking at it. So Flann O'Brien wrote this book at Swim Two Birds in the 1930s. And it's a book that has like three beginnings, a couple of middles and a few ends. It's a book about a man who's writing a book and then the characters in that book turn around and write a book about him. In one part of the book, he goes into Irish mythology and he's got characters like Fionn McCool, But then in another part of the book... It's an American cowboy story. But what happens throughout the book is characters from the Irish mythological universe end up bleeding into the stories about American cowboys from the 1930s because the characters in the book become aware that they're in a book and someone is writing them. And that doesn't seem very radical now, but in the 1930s, this was nuts. It was insane. It was so insane and so strange that nobody took Flan O'Brien seriously and it broke his heart and fucking ruined his life. But what made that book important is that it was a novel that asked questions about what a novel could be. And when I read that book when I was about 17, that had such a huge fucking influence on me and how I think about art. And that's why I was disappointed that Killian Murphy wasn't on the podcast this week, because something I really wanted to explore was... Last week's podcast was a straight example of autofiction. It started off with me blind boy. ...in Limerick City, in Bedford Row... ...wondering about why there was so much... ...bard shit on the streets... And ...then I used storytelling... ...the mechanics of fiction... ...to gradually go into a tale... ...about the history of bard shit... ...and why it's important to society... ...but also why bard shit... ...was essential... ...for the invention of... ...military explosives... ...and also the large population... ...that we have in the world today... ...but then this week... ...I could have interviewed... ...the real life actor Killian Murphy about the biographical film Oppenheimer, in which he plays the inventor of the nuclear bomb. Because it's a podcast, and not a TV or radio interview, I could have steered the conversation with Killian towards the relevance of bard shit in the invention of the nuclear bomb. Killian would have engaged me because it's a podcast, there's no rules, and now Killian Murphy becomes a character in my story about bard shit at that moment. Killian Murphy is both the actual real life Killian Murphy trying to promote his film and also fictionalized Killian Murphy existing in the blind boy universe talking about bard shit and in the middle of that then you've got a poem from Harvey Keitel that poem didn't happen I made that up that's 100% fiction Harvey Keitel didn't send the poem into this podcast but real Killian Murphy would have been there and what excites me about that is that's now modernism. the sincerity of modernism how are you getting on? I'm Killian Murphy. I'm here to talk about my new film as part of my job. The irony of postmodernism. Now I'm talking about bard shit for some reason, but fuck it, we'll see where it goes. When both of those states operate together in fluxes with each other, you have metamodernism. And metamodernism is what's relevant to us right now. Metamodernism is our lived reality. Metamodernism is how we as humans today navigate culture, mostly via our phones and social media. We either curate our own media timelines or they're curated for us with the algorithm, but we have to consistently rapidly flip-flop between emotions and positions. By which I mean, you just flick through Instagram. There's a photograph of a cute cat. Scroll, oh no, the world is burning. Oh, my friends after getting engaged. Scroll, an advert for constipation because your phone knows what age you are and now you're confronted with your own mortality. And the terror and sadness of that so that's the meta-modern reality that we live in a consistent continual fluxus between irony and sincerity sadness and jokes and that ultimately leaves us feeling confused and we don't really know what real or fake is anymore so that's what i'm saying about the power of a podcast as a creative medium where else can i write an entire thesis an autofictional thesis about bird shit and then bring killian murphy in there as a character So that the end result is an absurd type of performance art. So I know this shit sounds wanky. But when I speak this way. Or if I say my intention with this podcast is for it to be a novel. Or to create art. I'm not saying that that means that this, this is better than anything else. I'm just saying that's my intent and that's my process. And I'm autistic. I don't really have a choice with this shit. Art is my thing and every single waking moment of my day, this is what I think about. And if I'm not careful, it's to the detriment of functioning as a member of fucking society. So yes, I was very pleased that a student in the Trinity College Contemporary Literary Department, which would be one of the most prestigious literary departments in the world, someone whose job it is as a scholar to go, what is contemporary literature? I was very glad that that person so kindly dedicated their fucking master's thesis to this podcast and basically went, I know it's a podcast and podcasts are new and we don't really know what they are, but maybe this fellow over here is doing something that's literary. Sometimes a bit of external recognition is useful because when you're on the fringes of something and you're doing something weird, sometimes I'd be asking myself, maybe I'm just mental, maybe I'm actually just mad and everything that I think makes sense and the outside is just looks like a mental person like over the pandemic with my twitch streaming when i was writing songs to red dead redemption on live stream and the what i was exploring there and the question and the curiosity there was can i use new emerging technology to write songs in a new way when i was doing that there were literal debates on facebook Amongst middle-aged men where they thought I was having a nervous breakdown. And I questioned it. Because it was the fucking pandemic as well. So my mental health was in shit. But I questioned it and I said. What if I'm having a public mental breakdown? What, what if that's what this is? What if it's a public mental breakdown? And to me it makes perfect sense. But I'm actually having a public mental breakdown. Okay I think it's time for the ocarina pause. So that was a bit of a, a rambling riff. Riff. I mean, a lot of you do say you enjoy it when I I go into detail about the process. About the process of what art is and making art and my thoughts behind it. And that was kind of unprepared because, like I said, I was supposed to be interviewing Killian Murphy this week. So I didn't have time to do the proper long prep for a hot take. So let's have the ocarina pause. What book have I got to hit myself in the head with this week? Um, I don't have a piece of fiction this week it's a piece of non-fiction lovely little book very enjoyable book you can crack it open wherever you want A History of the World in 100 Objects by Neil MacGregor Um, it's published by the British Museum it's A History of the World in 100 Objects and all of these objects are in the British Museum very conflicted about the British Museum one of my favourite places in the world I fucking love the British Museum I've probably visited it 90 times, possibly more. I've spent hours in the British Museum. The bastion of British colonial arrogance. Of just, we own the entire world and we're going to take shit wherever we want and put it into our museum. Every country in the world begging to have their artefacts back. And I'm presented with the dichotomy of that every time I go in there, you know. But I fucking love the place. Oh God. I I adore it, and this book, A History of the World and 100 Objects, I think of two or three copies of it, a good day in the British Museum for me, I go in there at nine in the morning with a copy of this book, and I walk all around the museum and I visit the objects, I haven't done that in a while now, but 2013, 2014, when I used to do a lot of gigs in London, I'd be doing a 30 day run in Soho Theatre, I'd be staying in London for maybe five weeks, I'd be haunting the British Museum. The workers knew me by name. Completely free. Just walk in. Absorb myself in thousands and thousands of years of history. Incredible place. But you know. Colonialism. It's a strange feeling. It's like buying a hero's dose of cheap underpants in pennies. Getting all these underpants. Being thrilled with yourself. But knowing that like. It probably came from a sweatshop. So I'm going to hit myself into the head with A History of the World in 100 Objects by Neil McGregor. That's heavy now. That's a bit heavy. It's a book about 100 objects, lads. We'll go gentle. Imagine I knock my... <laughs> knocked myself out. Knocked myself out with a book from the British Museum and then just silence for the last 30 minutes. That's painful now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Brand Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Brand Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to b o l l and branch.com today. Exclusions apply, see site for details. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Right, that's sufficient there for a little advert to go in the middle so you didn't get a surprise. That was painful, that was sore. The full weight of British colonialism. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash podcast If you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you merriment, mirth, distraction, whatever the fuck. If you like listening to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I put into it. This podcast is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. I adore this podcast. If there's a theme for this episode, it's about the joy of process. Because that's all I've been speaking about is that the sheer joy that I get. Not by the end result of the podcast. But by the process and, and the curiosity and the fun. And the fact that this podcast never ends. It's just going to keep going and going and going until the universe says stop. But it's only possible for me to do this. If it's listener funded, if it's funded by ye the listeners via the Patreon page. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. For that, ye get four podcasts a month. It's how I pay my bills. It's how I buy my equipment. It's how I rent this office. It's how I exist. But if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. Everybody gets a podcast, I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. And I'm not beholden to advertisers. Do you think an advertiser is going to allow me to use the opportunity of an interview with Killian Murphy to steer things towards bard shit? They would cry. They'd be like, we're sponsoring this podcast. You've got Killian Murphy. Ask him about his private life. Give us viral bites. Get him to say something that'll get mentioned in the newspapers. We're sponsoring this episode and we need more listens and more attention, regardless of the cost. No, fuck off. I'm going to ask him some questions about bard shit and it's up to Killian how he wants to steer that. Support independent podcasters. Whatever independent podcaster you enjoy, whatever independent podcaster is doing something creative and fun that you find to be exhilarating, then support them directly. Doesn't have to be monetary. You can recommend the podcast to a friend, leave a review, leave likes, all that shit. Okay. My book, Topographia Hibernica, is out in November. You can pre order some signed copies of that if you like. Go to my Instagram, Bind by Bow Club, and look at my saved story. There's all the links for pre ordering the book. Now let's do some gigs. Let's have some fun with gigs, okay? Oh, yes. August. The 26th of August, I'm in the Cork Opera House. That's going to be so much fun. Check out that whole Cork podcast festival. The 28th of August, I'm in Vicar Street, up in Dublin. Monday night. Monday night cuddles. Let's do it. Then, I'm in. I can't say that gig. The pavilion's oh, sold out. Thank you, Dunleary. Thank you, Dunleary. I can't wait to visit your weather spoons. Then... Patrick Kavanagh weekend in Inishgeen, County Monaghan. I can't, I can't, I have a good guest for that. That's going to be a lot of fun, right? If you're up in Monaghan, come to the Patrick Kavanagh weekend on September 30th, please. Then, Belfast on the 18th of the 11th. What's the 11th month? Is that November? The waterfront in Belfast, which is a, I don't know what day, it's a Saturday. And then I have. On the 19th of November, I'm in Vicker Street for my fucking book launch. My book launch. The book is going to be out. Come along to that on the 18th of November. It's a uh, Sunday, Sunday night book fun in Vicker Street in November the 19th. Dog bless. Okay, so as is the custom, I've only answered one fucking question. Jamie asks, blind boy, can you make a prediction about the future? Yes not about the whole future in general but just one little thing something real intriguing that no one's talking about but it's happening before our eyes and it's very strange and i'm interested to see where it's gonna go have you noticed recently right and it pops up and down in the media where like a large artist like bruce springsteen or neil young or bob dylan they sell their music catalog fucking mad money so let's take bruce springsteen for example in 2021 bruce springsteen sold his entire back catalogue for 500 million justin bieber sold his back catalogue for 200 million dr dre sold his back catalogue for 200 million bob dylan sells his back catalogue for 200 million all these massive artists are selling the rights to their entire back catalogue. Selling away 100% of the rights to their music for massive sums of money. And it's really, really strange, because the thing is, one thing we're sure about right now is, music doesn't really make money anymore. Even if you buy Bob Dylan's back catalogue for 200 million, where are you going to make that back when it's all on Spotify or whatever, how is that a good investment? What the fuck is going on? And who's buying it? Well, who's buying all these back catalogs? Now, buying a back catalog means it's all the rights. You you no longer own your music. The person who buys it can do whatever the fuck they want. They can put it in adverts. They can put it in films. They can do whatever they want with your music. It's no longer your property. And older artists, legacy artists, are selling their back catalogs for huge amounts of money. Most of it's being bought by this company called Hypnosis Songs Fund. Hypnosis Songs Fund was started by Nile Rogers. Nile Rogers, who, fucking legend. I mean, Nile, I'd never get my head around Nile Rogers. Like, the man has written so many number one songs, like a fucking genius and he keeps coming to Ireland to gig. We can't fucking keep Nile Rogers out of Ireland. There'll be a tiny festival in Tharlis and Nile Rogers is there. We even have a joke in Ireland where it's like, you need to love this country as much as Nile Rogers does. He does not need the money. If you can think of a hit song by any artist in the past 50 years, chances are Nile Rogers wrote it, but he's probably gigging in Mullingar next week. But anyway, Nile Rogers and this fella called Mark Mercuriadas, who's a music industry executive him and Nile Rogers started this company called Hypnosis Songs Fund and they're basically buying all these huge back catalogs of massive artists, right? What if I told you that the company that owns Hypnosis is Blackstone? Blackstone are... The biggest landlord in Ireland, Blackstone, are a investment fund vulture fund, a gigantic pile of cash that buys assets, property, gold. It's an investment fund, and like I said, they're the largest landlord in Ireland. The fuck is Ireland's biggest landlord doing buying Justin Bieber's back catalogue for two hundred million? The fuck is that about? Especially. When music doesn't really make money anymore. The fuck are they doing? 200 million? They're spending billions and billions buying and owning songs. This doesn't make sense. Well, what I can tell you is the data that led them to this decision. We're about 14 years now into streaming technology. And in those 14 years, when you sign up to a streamer, Spotify... Can't even think of another one. Tidal, whatever. When you sign up to a streamer, it's all this the streaming company is also getting your data, your listening habits. And what the data is showing after 14 years of streaming is that older music, it never kind of goes up and down in popularity, it remains steady. Neil Young, Bob Dylan, David Bowie, Nile Rogers, Dr. Dre. This music just stays popular at a steady level and it doesn't seem to go in or out. You can bank on this. So this is where Hypnosis Song Fund and Blackstone, this giant fucking vulture fund, this is where they come into it. So Blackstone, who are an investment fund, they now see an asset that kind of doesn't change. Gold, for instance gold is always seen as a reliable investment why gold kind of always stays the same there's only so much gold and it kind of stays the same so if you put your money in gold your money is safe it's not necessarily you're not going to lose a lot you're not going to gain a lot it's gold it's going to remain the same so this investment fund is looking at back catalogs of music as if it's gold People will always listen to Bob Dylan. People will always listen to Bowie. This is effectively a type of gold that you can reliably put your money in. Here's my future prediction. This is where I'm... This is where I'm worried and sceptical. Because music doesn't make money. Even if you have Bob Dylan's catalogue and it's on Spotify, you're not going to make a lot of money from that. And if you decide... Okay, I'm going to get all of Bob Dylan's music now and I'm going to give it it to every single film in the world to use as they please. So take all of Bob Dylan's music and just smack it on every single movie. Now what that'll do is it'll make you short-term money but it lowers the value of Bob Dylan. Let's contrast that with ABBA. ABBA are an incredible band. ABBA are phenomenal, astounding. Some of the best songwriting you've ever heard. But ABBA made their music very commercially available in adverts, in films. ABBA became so ubiquitous that you couldn't escape it. And now to kind of listen to ABBA is difficult. You have to listen to it with fresh ears. It's hard to appreciate an ABBA song when it's been drilled into your head because it's in every advert. So what that does is that lowers the value of the music. If music is overplayed and you hear it all the time, it doesn't matter how good it is, it lowers the value of that music. So it doesn't make sense that these vulture funds are gonna buy all of Bruce Springsteen's songs and Neil Young and fucking Dylan, and then just give them to every advertiser who wants it. That doesn't make sense because that will lower the value of the music. So if you're making a sound investment, you need to increase the value of that investment. How do you increase something's something's value? You create scarcity. Now I grew up in a time when music had cultural scarcity. If I wanted, when I was a kid, I started getting into David Bowie when I was about 14. It took me about three years to get through his whole catalogue because his CDs were 25 euros each and I didn't have that money. So I had to buy a David Bowie album, listen to it for about three months until I could afford the next CD. His music was scarce. I had to own a CD. And that really upped its value. And the value was 25 quid. Now for a basic Spotify subscription. I can rent out all of David Bowie's music. And all music in recorded history. I can rent it all out for a fee once a month. So the value of music has gone down massively. Here's what I think is going to happen. The Vulture Funds. Blackstone who are a heartless, massive pile of cash, Ireland's biggest landlord, this heartless pile of cash, who don't care about the, you know, creating the housing crisis. They don't care about how they price people out of homes. A heartless investment fund is very rapidly acquiring 100% ownership of the best music in the world. Now, I don't own any music anymore. I rent it out from streaming sites. I think sometime within the next 10, 15 years, the vulture fund that owns all the music is going to create cultural scarcity. Whether they use the blockchain, NFTs, I don't know what our digital landscape is going to be like in 15 years. I don't know how much autonomy and control we will have. I think, right, what's happening right now, they're going to get the best music in the world because they're investing billions in it as an asset, they're going to get the best music in the world and possibly make it as rare as the Mona Lisa. They're going to up its value. It's going to become very difficult and very exclusive and very expensive to hear the music of Bruce Springsteen. It's going to involve the blockchain. It's going to involve quantum computing. Whatever technology we're going to have, the people who are investing billions now, the company that's investing billions now, They're going to own some type of infrastructure where they can actually create scarcity with art. And we might not be able to access it using whatever technology we have. Maybe someone might have an old CD player or an old vinyl and you listen to it in the old school way. But why else are the biggest vulture fund in the world spending billions on owning 100% music as a an asset that they view as gold they're gonna own it they're gonna create cultural scarcity they're gonna up the value we're still gonna want it we're always gonna want david bowie's music and fucking bob dylan's that's what's gonna happen it'll be nfts it'll be blockchain i don't know but when the biggest vulture fund in the world is spending billions on something that doesn't make money now they're figuring out a way to make money and you make money from an asset by making it scarce. So that's my little future prediction. <laughs> right, I'll catch you next week. I don't. I'll be back with a hot take, most likely. Okay. This was this was a bit of an impromptu podcast because of circumstances. But I'll be back next week. In the meantime, rub a dog, kiss a swan. Don't kiss a swan. Actually, that'd be a terrible idea. Wave at a swan from a safe distance. Uh, dog bless.